The ragged column of soldiers stumble along the cobbles, their rusting muskets held forlornly by their side. We look more like the rakings of hell than the fragments of an army, says one of the men, trying to raise a laugh from his exhausted comrades. There's a gasp from the public that has gathered at the quay to meet them. British civilians are used to hearing of military calamities abroad, but they've never seen the dreadful results at first hand. Uniforms are shredded. Once red jackets are now grimy, pink and ripped. Trousers filthy and patched with a kaleidoscope of colours. Many of the men are barefoot, hobbling in pain, their feet ruined by a 250-mile fighting retreat over mountains, through torrential rain and freezing snow, pursued and harassed the whole way by the most powerful army in the world. The men are gaunt and sunken-eyed with long, ragged beards. I will never be a soldier again, cries a young Scotsman to his best friend Thomas. I will be nothing but Donald the Blind Man. Had I been killed, if you had left me to die in Spain, it would have been far better to have lain still in a wreath of snow than to be all my life a blind beggar, a burden on my friends. Those who had made it back to Britain were lucky. Around 6,000 of their comrades, nearly a fifth of the force, had died or been taken prisoner during the course of the campaign in Spain. It had been an epic struggle between the biggest British expeditionary force that had ever been deployed to act as a single army and the all-conquering French. The campaign had seen advances and retreats, an epic march through the snow, a bitter fight for survival, an eventual escape from Spain on board ships, a Napoleonic Dunkirk. But what happened? In the last episode, we saw the British expel the French from Portugal. Their confidence were high, and the French were on the back foot. Well, in the next two episodes of the Redcoat History podcast, I'll be telling the story of those desperate months, from the beginning of the advance into Spain under the command of Lieutenant General Sir John Moore until the Battle of Coruña in January 1809. It is an epic story, but it's a period that is often overlooked in favour of the later battles, the campaigns of Wellesley. But it's a mistake to ignore Sir John Moore and his campaign. Wellington himself later said of Moore, We'd have not won, I think, without him. Even Napoleon Bonaparte said, I won't do a French accent, don't worry, it was only Moore's actions which stopped me taking Spain and Portugal. These episodes will be packed with action and intrigue. We'll be hearing from the senior officers, even from Napoleon himself. But most importantly, we will be regaled by the tales of the men at the sharp end, men like Robert Blakeney, a subaltern in the 28th North Gloucestershire Regiment, who, during the retreat, often found himself at the rear of the rearguard, facing down the rampaging French cavalry. We'll also hear from others like Rifleman Ben Harris of the 90th Rifles, Captain Alexander Gordon, who charged with the 15th Hussars at the Battle of Sahagun, and Deputy Assistant Commissary General August Schaumann, or Schaumann, I'll go with Schaumann, a Hanoverian who did his best to help feed and equip the army as the supply chain began to collapse. It is first-hand accounts by these soldiers, the boots on the ground, which make up the majority of this story. So welcome to episode three of season three of the Redcoat History podcast. This year is seeing us take a deep dive into the Peninsular War of 1808 to 1814. 
If you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, then I do recommend going back and having a listen, as it tells the tale of the battles of Relisa and Vimiero, where a young general called Sir Arthur Wellesley proved he was a capable commander and more than just a sepoy general. I also have some big news to share with you. My new book is available for pre-order. It's the first of a planned series of the Military History Geeks Guide 2. And as anyone who's been following the podcast knows, I'm very passionate about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Therefore, it made sense that that would be the first book. I essentially took my podcast notes, tidied them up, added some more detail, and then edited, edited them together into a book-friendly format. If you want to purchase a copy, then it's currently available on Amazon. Just search for the Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War and you'll find it. It's priced at $3.99 right now. If you subscribe to my newsletter, I'm also sending out a preview chapter, which will give you a taste and you can see if you like it. Just go to redcoathistory.com newsletter and sign up. But anyway, for now, let us return to Portugal. So finish that canteen of cheap wine, stand to attention and let us march to glory. It was a miserable October morning in 1808 when the British army set out along the banks of the Tagus River. They were finally leaving the safety of Lisbon and heading for Spain and the certainty of battle with the French. A cacophony of sound accompanied the redcoats as they advanced. The heavy drone of bullock carts, wheels straining against the road, the jingle of bells around the necks of mules and the chatter and cursing of thousands of soldiers. It wasn't a good season for long marches and campaigning. The rain fell in lead sheets, soaking through uniforms and adding weight to already heavy packs. But orders were orders, and the politicians in London had made it clear to the new British commander, Sir John Moore, that he must advance into Spain as quickly as possible. Lieutenant General Sir John Moore held the most important command of any British general since Marlborough. With around 35,000 men, he was tasked with assisting the Spanish to throw out the French invaders. As you may recall from the last episode, the command had fallen to him after Generals Barard, Dalrymple and Wellesley had been recalled to Britain in disgrace after signing the Convention of Sintra, which allowed the French to escape Portugal. Moore is now viewed as one of Britain's great soldiers, but his blunt outspoken ways had made him extremely unpopular with the politicians in London. They had gone to great lengths to avoid giving him command of the original expedition to Portugal and Spain. But now it was something of a fait accompli. He was already there. Moore was a Glaswegian who had travelled widely as a youth and become fluent in French, German and Italian before being commissioned into the army at the age of 15. He was handsome, tall and imposing, with wide, thoughtful eyes, wavy, greying hair. A man of action, always keen to be at the heart of the battle. He served in the American War of Independence and later threw himself into battles against the French revolutionaries at Toulon, in Corsica, the West Indies, Holland and Egypt. His bravery was impressive and he was badly wounded a number of times as he pushed and purchased his way up the ranks. Moore was a soldier's soldier, an innovator and an officer who believed in leading his men rather than driving them. In 1803 he was tasked with helping to modernise the British light infantry arm his subsequent reforms were groundbreaking in a notoriously conservative army. With the help of Colonel Coot Manningham and others, he focused training around fieldcraft field and marksmanship rather than simply drilling. 
he encouraged the men to use their initiative, believing in the idea of a thinking fighting man. And he focused on changing the often lazy attitude of many officers, encouraging them to be more professional in their outlook. It was these principles that were to be so important in the success of Britain's army during the coming era. We'll go into much greater detail on these changes in a future episode. I've got a few interviews I'm hoping to do that will talk specifically about the rifles and the light infantry arm. But anyway, back to our story. And the summer of 1808 had been a promising time for Britain and their allies in the peninsula. Not only had the French been ejected from Portugal, but the Spanish had inflicted a number of costly defeats on them. On the 19th of July, a Spanish force under General Castaños had battered the French at the Battle of Bailen in southern Spain and taken 17,000 prisoners. In August, another French army under General Verdier was forced to withdraw after failing to capture Zaragoza. These had been momentous victories for the Spanish that had given them something of a false sense of their own strength. They now predicted the rapid destruction of the French army and a swift advance into France itself. The Spanish could muster a decent-sized army, but it was generally badly armed and poorly trained, and most importantly its leaders were divided and there was no overall commander. Each regional junta, hunter, only concerned with their own area of operations. Despite this, they were convinced that the war was as good as won, there wasn't much left to do. In France, Napoleon Bonaparte himself was enraged by his army's disastrous summer. His plan to add Portugal and Spain to his empire was collapsing, and he felt that his generals were failing him. He decided that only his presence could turn the tide in France's favour. With a vast army of over 200,000 men, including his elite imperial guard and the decorated veterans of Gina, Austerlitz and Friedland, he advanced across the Pyrenees, determined to crush the British and Spanish. Soldiers, he told his men during the march south, I have need of you. The hideous presence of the leopard contaminates the peninsula of Spain and Portugal. In terror he must fly before you. Let us bear our triumphal eagles to the pillars of Hercules. There also we have injuries to avenge. At this point, despite his mention of the British there, Napoleon's focus was mainly just to retake Madrid and crush the Spanish. While he was aware of Moore and the British Expeditionary Force, he didn't at any point expect them to advance into Spain and challenge his mighty army. To face this enormous French force, Moore had 35,000 men, 25,000 deploying with him from Portugal, and a further 10,000 under General Sir David Baird, scheduled to rendezvous with him in Salamanca after disembarking at the Spanish port of Coruña. This was the bulk of the British army, the biggest expeditionary force they had ever deployed to act as a single army. And if it was destroyed, then Britain would be in grave danger, incapable of mounting any further campaigns on the continent for many years. Moore's task was a monumentally difficult one. His army was generally inexperienced, its stores and transport were insufficient, and it was about to undertake a gruelling 300-mile march across unmapped mountainous terrain in the middle of the wet season. To exacerbate his problems, the British Treasury had failed to supply him with sufficient money to obtain enough carts and pack animals, meaning that the men themselves would have to shoulder the bulk of their own kit and belongings. August Schaumann, 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 I don't know how you say it, a Deputy Assistant Commissary General had a worrying taste of the army's lack of preparedness when he went to collect a donkey for his journey into Spain. I'm not going to do a German accent either, so let's just keep it neutral. They kept me waiting for two hours, 
<laughs> no, I'm joking. Let me, let me not do that. They kept me waiting for two hours. At last, losing patience, I exclaimed, Gentlemen, if you had any idea of all I have to do with my regiment marching in the morning, and it is already four o'clock, you would surely try to settle particulars with me as quickly as possible. It is hard enough to have been given such short notice in order to make the adequate preparations for such a journey and such a march. I have no office, no assistant, no map, no statistical and topographical description of the country through which I am about to lead these troops. This pathetic speech was met with loud laughter on the part of the office staff. <laughs> I see bureaucrats haven't changed. To make matters worse, General Moore also decided to divide his army. Portuguese advisers told him that his artillery would be enabled to cross the mountains via the direct route to Salamanca. He therefore sent the artillery with an escort of infantry and cavalry, totalling 6,000 men under General Hope, via a circuitous route along the Elvas and Badajoz highways towards Madrid. It meant that they would have to march over 100 miles further than the rest of the army. This was a monumental error, and it was based on incorrect information. As the great Peninsular War historian Charles Oman says, Only four months before Loisan, a French commander, in his campaigns against the insurgents of Beira, had taken guns first from Lisbon to Almeida, then from Almeida to Peso de Ragoa and Viseu, and finally from Almeida to Abrantes. It is simply astounding that no one seems to have remembered this simple fact. In short, it was not easily pardonable in any competent general that he should accept as possible the statement that there was no road for artillery connecting the capital of Portugal and the main stronghold of its northeastern frontier. Strong words. This separation of the army, following different routes into Spain, would lead to long delays and have massive ramifications for the outcome of the campaign. Once the entire army was finally gathered and on the march, it was organised as follows. There was Lieutenant General Mackenzie Fraser's division, with Bentnick's brigade and Hill's brigade, and Wilmot's company of the Royal Artillery, the one that didn't go with General Hope. Although technically commanded by Mackenzie Fraser, this division was under Sir John Moore's direct command, and it deployed to Salamanca via Abrantes and Guada. Then there was Major General Edward Paget's division, which included Anstruffer's brigade and Alton's brigade of the King's German Legion. This division travelled via Elvas and Alcantara. There were also two independent brigades that moved through Coimbra and Viseu. There was Berriford's brigade and Fane's brigade. There was also Lieutenant General Hope's division, which we've already discussed. They included a cavalry brigade, Crawford's brigade, and artillery, which was Drummond's company, Carthew's company, Crawford's company, Rainsford company, Thornhill's and Skyring's company. I must say, soldiers in that age had such great names. I've never met anyone with names like this in the modern age. What, what happened to these great names? Meanwhile, General Baird and his men were waiting in their ships off the coast of Coruña. Initially, the Spaniards had refused the troops' permission to disembark, considering them too close to their naval arsenal at Ferrol, I guess presumably assuming the British were up to some sort of mischief. Eventually, after an astonishing 13-day wait, they relented and the men began to come ashore on the 26th of October 1808, dangerously late. By the time they set off to meet Moore's army, they were organised into two infantry divisions with a separate cavalry and artillery arm. 
One of the divisions was under Major General Ward. Then there was Major General Coote Manningham's division, the same Coote Manningham we mentioned earlier, who helped organise Britain's initial light troops. Then there was his cavalry under Lieutenant General Lord Paget and Brigadier General Slade. There was the seven flight dragoons, ten flight dragoons, fifteen fazars, Downman's B Troop Royal Horse Artillery, and Everlay's C Troop of the Royal Horse Artillery. By the way, sometimes the term light dragoons and hussars gets interchanged, and apologies for that. It's just a lot of the light dragoons had only just changed to hussars, and in some of the sources are still referred to as light dragoons. Baird also had an artillery element, including Bean's Company, Truscott's Company and Wall's Company. As the long march into Spain began, the British Army were confident and excited to have another crack at the French. Benjamin Harris of the 2nd 95th Rifles, who we met in the last episode, was amongst them. He recalled, We now passed to the left and bade adieu to Portugal forever. We had thought, fought and conquered and felt elated accordingly. Spain was before us, and every man in the rifles seemed only anxious to get a rap at the French again. On and on we toiled, till we reached Salamanca. I love to remember the appearance of that army, as we moved along at this time. It was a glorious sight to see our colours spread in the fields. The men seemed invincible. Nothing I caught could have beaten them. Captain John Patterson was in the 50th West Kent Regiment, known as the Black Cuffs. Despite the rigours of the march to Spain, the regiment's morale was excellent. He said, At the head of the column is to be seen a host of seniors or, or old hands, among whom the laugh and a joke prevail. And there many a long-winded veteran inflict upon the ears of his patient auditors a narrative as endless as the road. The surgeon, who is often a very hearty fellow, with better things than bolluses and pillboxes in his panniers, together with the adjutant and his brethren of the staff, attract around them in the rear a batch of thoroughly pleasant men who keep up such a volley of jest and drollery as frequently to beguile the weariness of the longest march. Thanks to their amusing powers, we have often found ourselves at the gate of the town or on the campground without being aware that we travelled any distance. Funny, I guess people were people then as they are now. I'm sure the same thing would happen on long marches now. Every two hours the troops would halt for a few minutes and then the men would quickly reach for food in their packs. Here's Patterson again. Some perform a solo on the shank bone of a well-picked ham. Others display their talents on the drumstick of a half-starved fowl while the majority gnaw their way through the skinny junk of an old tough bullock. At the well-known sound of pipes or a bugle, the warriors are again on their legs, stretching them out with renewed vigour. Among the soldiers there is likewise much drollery and mirth. Nothing makes much difference with them. It matters not whether trumps turn up or not, whether the chance be a battle or a good billet, they're still the same and trudge along devoid of care. Give them their allowance and a little rest and they require no more. Day after day I have listened to their jokes and stories and been highly entertained by their originality and humour. I'd like to hear a few of those. I, I bet there were some cracking tales being told. When morale did suffer and the men were on their last legs, the regimental band was called into, into action to play a stirring quickstep. Here's Patterson again. As if by magic, those who were tired and jaded sprung up with additional life and vigour giving the knapsack a cast upon the shoulder, stepping out once more with fresh spirit. 
The music as we approached the towns had a twofold purpose of pleasing the inhabitants and cheering the troops. Robert Blakeney, a teenage subaltern with the Light Company of the 1st Battalion 28th North Gloucestershire Regiment, had been on the road since the 14th of October. He and his men had the misfortune to accompany Wilmot's Company of Artillery, which the, was the only one taking the steep mountain roads alongside the bulk of the army. He recalled of the journey, The company consisted of six lights, six pounders, and even these we had the greatest difficulty in getting through the passage, Villa Velha. The first guns conveyed across had to drag ropes attached, and to resist its rapidity while being trailed downhill, these ropes were held by as many soldiers as the short and frequent turning of the zigzag would permit, yet their resistance was scarcely sufficient to preserve the guns from rolling over the precipice. precipice. This in great measure arose from Captain Wilmot having opposed locking any of the wheels, alleging that by doing so the carriages would suffer materially and consequently become unserviceable. Trailing the guns down in this manner was excessively laborious to the soldiers and not unattended with danger. Several men who could not get clear of the ropes, suddenly coming to sharp turns, were dragged through the walls which flanked the road. The resistance necessary to check the velocity even of these light guns must have been very great, for I can attest that there, were not, there was not one soldier of the 28th Light Company who had heels to his shoes after the drag. They were a good deal shaken and much dissatisfied, considering it a great hardship to have a pair of shoes destroyed in one day without being allowed any remuneration. I can understand that. And damaged shoes weren't the only problem the men had to complain about. Violent storms kept them cold and wet all the time. Two men in Blakeney's regiment and five in the 5th regiment died from exposure. There was also worrying signs around lapses in discipline, a disturbing foretaste of the breakdown that was to come. One evening, August Schaumann shared a glass of mulled wine with the officers of the 32nd Regiment. Suddenly, the Sergeant Major appeared with bad news. Colonel, I've come to inform you, sir, that the whole regiment, including the guard and picket, is dead drunk. Many of the men are lying like dead, and most urgent measures will have to be taken if we're, if we're not all to go to the dogs. August then says, Never shall I forget the expression of our faces as we looked around at each other. Our cigars fell from our lips. It seemed that the men of the regiment had discovered some barrels of brandy hidden in a coach house by the river. They broke in, filled their camp kettles and quickly spread the word around the battalion. Infuriated, the colonel charged down to the river, determined to confront the offending soldiers. Schaumann says, the moment we arrived, a number of fellows who had been busy pumping ran away as fast as they could with their camp kettles, which they emptied of brandy as they ran. A few poor devils who were sitting up on the roof and handing up brandy from the inside were placed under arrest, and one of them was found quite unconscious. From that day forward, the regiment became lifeless and insubordinate. As the marching columns crept onwards, the winter deepened and the temperature dropped. Thomas Pocock of the 71st Highland Regiment recalls that as his unit approached Salamanca, they were warned of a possible enemy attack and they formed a received cavalry square, remaining in that position all night. It was one of the severest nights of cold I ever endured in my life. At that time we wore long hair, formed into a club at the back of our heads. Mine was frozen to the ground in the morning, and when I attempted to rise, my limbs refused to support me for some time. I felt the most excruciating pains all over my body before the blood began to circulate. 
really gives a sense of it, doesn't it? And how, how tough life was in general for these guys. You know, these were tough nuts. The first British units had reached Salamanca on the 13th of November. While they waited for Hope's unit to rendezvous with them, news reached General Moore confirming a series of crushing Spanish defeats culminating at the Battle of Tudela, where the Spanish suffered 4,000 casualties and lost 26 guns. Moore now was completely on his own, with no friendly forces screening his separated and disjointed army from the French. He had a tough decision to make. His intelligence reports were limited and the Spanish had proved exceptionally unhelpful to him so far. Their armies well beaten and lacking any unified command. He was still waiting for both General Baird and General Hope's troops and his finances and supplies were very limited. He was aware of French troops at Valladolid and Carrion, with other divisions moving towards him from Madrid. Until his guns and cavalry arrived there was no point trying to face them, he'd simply be overwhelmed. With limited options, he could either remain in Spain, wait for his army to unite and attempt to harass the French as they swept through the country, or he could cut his losses and fall back on Portugal, or, or to the ports in northern Spain. Any movement further into Spain towards Madrid at this point would be incredibly dangerous, and risked seeing the army cut off and annihilated. But retreat, without even firing a shot, would forever damage his reputation. It was a tough call and after much hand-wringing he decided to place the blame for his misfortune on the Spanish and withdraw. He wrote to General Hope on the 28th, After due consideration, I have determined to give things up and to retire. It was my wish to have run great risks to fulfil what I conceive to be the wishes of the people of England, and to give every aid to the Spanish cause. But they have shown themselves equal to do so little for themselves their two principal armies having allowed themselves to be thus beaten and dispersed with almost no effort. The same night he gathered his senior officers together and explained the plan to them. They were disgruntled and even his own staff barely concealed their anger. Soon afterwards though, Hope's column finally caught up with more. Along with their cavalry and guns, they also brought important intelligence that the French were no longer moving towards the British, but were disregarding them altogether, focusing instead on wiping out the Spanish. Moore immediately saw an opportunity to threaten their lines of communications, upset Napoleon's plans and take the pressure off the battered Spaniards. In a brave move, the orders to retreat were quickly countermanded to the delight of most of the army. Brigadier Charles William Stuart, former aide-de-camp to King George III, recalled that the men under his command were delighted at the news, and a wave of excited expectation washed through them. Never had a condemned criminal rejoiced more heartily at the receipt of a reprieve than did the British army when these tidings got abroad amongst them. But a few hours ago, and every face looked blank and woe-begone, men did their duty indeed attended to their horses and accoutrements, and performed all the other offices which their stations required, but they set about everything with the air of people who took no manner of interest in what they were doing. Now all was life and activity, insomuch that even occupations which but a few hours ago would have cost many a complaint whilst in process of execution, were ex executed not only without a murmur, but with apparent satisfaction. I do love the way these guys wrote, it's bloody hard to read sometimes. On the 10th of December, the army began to leave the relative comfort of Salamanca and advance into the plains of Old Castile. The rain had now been replaced by snow and an icy wind howling down from the mountains of Navarre. 
on the 14th of December as the troops marched towards the town of Valladolid. An intercepted dispatch was brought to Moore that changed everything again. A French officer, bizarrely choosing to ride without, without an escort, had been killed after an argument with the Spanish postmaster at Val de Stios. Captain Waters, a British intelligence officer, paid $20 for the contents of the Frenchman's bag and forwarded it to Moore. Its contents were chilling. It spelt out the true strength and dispositions of the French troops in the peninsula, and for the first time Moore realised how huge Napoleon's force ranged against him really was. More than twice the number he had been led to believe. The dispatch also gave the position of Marshal Sioux and Junot's corps, which at that time were still separated. By the way, Sioux is spelled S-O-U-L-T. I believe Sioux is the pronunciation, but apologies again to French speakers if I'm wrong. You'll, there'll be a lot of apologies. Basically, I may as well just stop apologising because there's going to be a lot of apologising otherwise during this season. Moore now knew Napoleon's dispositions and could work out his own plans accordingly. He quickly decided to change the direction of his advance and to strike at Sioux's isolated force around Carrion, Mayorga and Sahagun. His plan was to rendezvous with Baird and to launch an immediate attack before the rest of the French army could be united. He pushed his men harder than ever, desperate to unite with Baird and attack. Even tough campaigners like Ben Harris were exhausted by the pace that was now set. He recalled, Our marches were now still more arduous. The load we carried was too great, and we staggered on looking neither to the right nor to the left. If a man dropped, he found it no easy matter to get up again, unless his companion assisted him, and many died of fatigue. As for myself, I was nearly floored by this march, and on reaching a town which I think was called Zamora, I fell at the entrance of the first street we came to. The sight left my eyes, my brain reeled, and I came down like a dead man. When I recovered my senses, I remember that I crawled into a door I found open, and being too ill to rise, lay some time in a passage, unregarded by the inhabitants. I know he sounds a bit Irish, it's not meant to be. On the 20th of December, Moore and Baird's forces finally united at Mayorga. They eyed each other with interest, as Ben Harris recalled again, the difference in appearance between ourselves and the newcomers was very great. They looked fresh from good quarters and good rations. Their clothes and accoutrements were comparatively new and clean, and their cheeks ruddy with the glow of health and strength. Whilst our men on the country were gaunt-looking, way-worn and ragged, our faces burnt almost to the hue of an Asiatic's by the sun, our accoutrements rent and torn and many without even shoes on our feet. Although in theory the army now should have its full 35,000 men, in reality there was only actually 19,053 infantry and 2,278 cavalry, as well as 68 pieces of artillery which were available to Moore. Over 4,000 men were in hospital and a number of regiments had been left in Portugal and en route at Lugo and Astorga. This combined force was now quickly reorganised in a bid to mix up those units that had fought the French in Portugal and the relatively raw newcomers that had come with General Baird. There were four infantry divisions with two independent light brigades and a cavalry division. There was the 1st Division under Lieutenant General Baird himself. There was the 2nd Division under Lieutenant General Hope. A 3rd Division under Lieutenant General Mackenzie Fraser. And then the Reserve Division under Major General Edward Paget. There was also the flank or light brigade under Colonel R. Crawford, or Crawford, uh, a man we'll, we'll be meeting uh, again. That included Ben's regiment, the 2nd 95th, 
eight companies of them. Uh, the 2nd Battalion 52nd Regiment and the 1st Battalion 43rd Regiment. There was another flank or light brigade, which was the King's German Legion, under General Brigadier General Baron Alton. Then there was the cavalry under Lord Paget, who was Edward Paget's brother. It all gets confusing. It's all very incestuous in those days. And then the reserve artillery under Colonel Harding. With his army combined and ready for action, Moore was disappointed when Marshal Sioux did not immediately advance towards him. Therefore, Moore quickly ordered Lieutenant General Lord Paget and his cavalry to attack the enemy at a place called Sahagoon. It was a large town on the banks of the Saya River. The French 8th Dragoons and the 1st Provisional Chasseur à Chevelle were posted at a convent on the edge of the town, and Paget's plan was to cut them off and annihilate them. Captain Alexander Gordon of the 15th Hussars was one of Paget's dashing young officers. In his dark blue dolman jacket with its matching pelisse and intricate silver lace, he cut an impressive figure. So far he'd spent the campaign focused on his love life. While quartered in the village of Villa Graxima, close to Mayorga, he had become devoted to the beautiful Maria, the daughter of the owner of his billet. He'd wooed her with his impressive stock of Spanish compliments and flattering speeches and promised to take her in England. Typical cavalry officer, some might say. But on the morning of Sunday the 18th of December, as he escorted her to church, the service was interrupted by the bugles sounding boots and saddles. He rushed to grab his things and prepare his horse, hurriedly saying goodbye to a woman he would never see again. Gordon's regiment was on the move, first to Villa Pando and then Mayorga, before receiving orders to commence a secretive night march towards Sahagun. The roads were covered in sheets of ice, the horsemen struggling to control their mounts. Gordon recalled, Our march was disagreeable and even dangerous, owing to the slippery state of the roads. There was seldom an interval of many minutes without two or three horses falling, but fortunately a few of their riders were hurt by these falls. The snow was drifted in many places to a considerable depth, and the frost was extremely keen. Just after dawn on the 21st, the British approached Sahagoon. On the main road into town, they surrounded the French main guard, but in the confusion, a single enemy trooper managed to escape and raise the alarm. The sound of trumpets now began to wake the town, alerting the French to the British presence. Paget quickly split his force, ordering the 10th Hussars, or the 10th Light Dragoons, whatever you want to call them, to follow the Saya River, while he led the 15th Hussars to the right to cut the enemy off. As the 15th reached the suburbs, they found the two French cavalry regiments forming up in the snow-covered fields. The French immediately opened fire with their carbines, the crack of musketry shattering the early morning calm. But the ragged volley caused few casualties, and Paget, deciding not to wait for the 10th Hussars, and seeing the French changing formation, flung his heavily outnumbered men into the charge. Gordon was in the thick of the action. We came upon them shouting Emsdorf and victory! The shock was terrible. Horses and men were overthrown and the shriek of terror, intermixed with oaths, groans and prayers for mercy, issued from the whole extent of their front. Our men, although surprised at the depth of the ranks, pressed forward until they had cut their way quite through the column. It was a stunning victory, to be fair. Charles Oman considered it the most brilliant exploit by cavalry during the whole six years of war. The French suffered 23 killed and 167 men taken prisoner during the 10-minute fight before the remainder broke and ran for it. 
The first provisional chasseur achevel were so badly cut up that they were later disbanded. The British had shown their superior sabre skills and the 15th didn't suffer a single fatality. But they did struggle due to the effects of the weather, lack of fitness and poor preparation. As Gordon recalled, Our hands were so benumbed with intense cold that we could scarcely feel the reins or hold our swords. Our horses, which had suffered from confinement on shipboard, change of forage and the fatigues of incessant marches in inclement weather, were not in their usual condition. And as the commanding officer had neglected to halt the regiment during the march for the purpose of tightening their girths, they had become so slack that when we began to gallop, several of the blankets slipped from under the saddles. It was a brilliant victory, let's be fair. Proof that man for man the British cavalry, when well commanded, were more than a match for the French. But the battle didn't change the strategic outlook. Things were now beginning to look perilous for Moore's army. British deserters had informed Napoleon of their advance, convincing him that Moore could no longer be ignored. Desperate to destroy the British, he shifted his strategic goals, ordering his vast army to turn around and swing north. On the 22nd of December, he left the recently reconquered Madrid to lead his men into battle, writing in his diary, I am starting immediately to operate against the English, who appear to have received reinforcements and to be making a show of boldness. The English move is extraordinary. It's clear that they have left Salamanca. It's probable that they have sent their transports to Ferrol with the idea that a retreat on Lisbon would be dangerous. Intelligence of Napoleon's movement soon reached Moore. It was now clear that he was about to be engulfed by a huge battle-hardened French force led in person by the man considered Europe's greatest general. To stand and fight so far from his supplies with little prospect of help from the Spanish now seemed foolhardy almost suicidal. Yet again he was forced to flip-flop. The advance against Sioux was quickly halted and on Christmas Eve 1808 the retreat began. And so that seems as good a time as any to wrap up the podcast for today, with Moore and his army in danger of being swamped. Can they avoid Napoleon? Will the army's morale fail? Will Moore prove to be a great leader of men? Lots of questions that still need answering. So, before we wrap up, just a quick reminder that my Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879 is released on the 6th of June and can now be pre-ordered on Amazon. Just search for that title and you'll find it. If you're keen for it on other formats, then let me know and I'll see what I can do. One day I'd like to make a paperback, although frankly that'll probably still be through Amazon. But I can organise maybe a PDF that you can buy directly from my website. If, if that's something you'd rather look at, let me know. A couple of people have, have asked me to look at that option. Oh, and one other thing, you may have noticed that I'm no longer using the music of the band Forlorn Hope for this series of the podcast. It's a real shame because it worked so perfectly. But despite having the full agreement of the band, there was a copyright claim against me on YouTube, which I lost. I guess the, the world of music copyright is much more complicated than I thought. Uh, a, a, a direct message from the band isn't enough to, to allow you to use it. Anyway, guys, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, please stay safe, stay strong, and don't let the fear mongers get to you. However bad your life is, it could be worse. You could be in Spain with no shoes in the middle of winter, about to face one of the greatest armies the world has ever seen. You can either get drunk on stolen booze, fall apart and be murdered by the roadside, or keep your discipline, work as a team, and live to fight another day. That's a choice we all have. All right, guys, speak to you next month.